Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Will, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show. It's a pleasure, Ryan. Today, we're going to talk about a lot. We've got, I guess, an intro to you. We're going to talk about responsible, sustainable investing. We're going to talk about some lessons learned along the way from different companies, from sectors, from just innovations in the industry overall, but maybe a bit of tongue-in-cheek to begin with, if, if I may. And the first question is, if you could pick one skill... So this might be a realistic superpower that you could achieve. Um, what would it be? To be honest, I reckon the one skill I'd love to have perfected is doing TED Talks. Oh. So engaging with an audience, no notes, no mm-hmm. script, not even any additional help, just standing on a stage and talking to an audience and engaging with them and conveying a, re- a really interesting message, uh, maybe a profound message mm. and some humor. That's a skill that I'd love to actually hone um, <laughs> and and use in the future. Have you, I imagine you've done quite a few presentations. Do you, Is this something that you, do you try and prepare for them? Do you have notes on the back um, of your hand or on a incre- prompter? Look, it's a good question. I, increasingly, I try and avoid notes. Seemingly, with particularly when you're presenting to investors, you have slides, mm. and seemingly you need to use those slides. My challenge to probably my colleagues and and, and others in the industry is: could we not have a conversation about an investment idea or a strategy where there are no slides, and you just talk, and you and you engage the audience, and you convey to the audience mm. the very essence of that investment strategy or the very essence of that subject. And I, I and so to answer your question, I still think I and the organisation I work for are too reliant on slides. And we've all been to those lectures at university, you know, where mm. the professor or the tutor goes through a whole lot of slides and by the end of the of the presentation, you actually forgot where he started or she started, and sometimes you even forget the key message. So, mm. TED talks, in my mind, uh, if they're done well, can really convey powerful messages. And again, you just don't need anything else with it. 
I agree. I feel like there's a calling for you at one of our events that we do in the future and um, we suggest no slides. I feel like <laughs> uh, that would be very welcome on our circuit. So the second question is, if you could, in, if you could recommend to a friend one finance, I've chosen a movie, but it could be a book if you, if you want to go down that path, one piece of content to a non-finance friend, colleague or family member to get them excited about this idea of investing, what would it be? There was a great uh, documentary um, on how Warren Buffett became Warren Buffett. Hmm. And it was, I think it was filmed in 2016, 2017. I, I saw it on an airplane coming back from overseas once. Hmm. And the reason why I nominate that to a non-investor is because this particular documentary on Warren, which obviously started when he was very young and right up until he'd gone to university and so on, but it it simplified the Buffett philosophy on investing such that if you were a non-investor, you could actually empathize with it. And a lot of people listening to this podcast, they may have seen it or they'd be very familiar with Buffett or they might have read some of his books or they might even go to his annual forum. But what I loved about it is, is he conveyed using his life, particularly growing up, why he's such a long-term investor and why value is so important to him. Mm. And why touching and feeling a company and, and understanding the management of a company and understanding what widget or service they provide or produce. Um, so that it's a documentary and it was about 2017 and uh, it was called Becoming Warren Buffett 2017. That That is exactly what I'd recommend. I'm going to write this down, Will, because I haven't seen this and I've I recently went back and uh, reread Warren Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist. Oh, yeah. And I really wanted to read this book again because during a period of uncertainty, you get the you get the 50 years of his history and it just shows you how difficult it was f- for him mm. to to become the investor that he did mm. in through multiple market cycles, through some of the worst cycles we've ever seen. Absolutely. And that gave me confidence to say, well, you know, what, what we're in right now, I, I feel like at any point when you have that volatility, being a student of history is so important. I, I, I don't know if you've read the book, but again, this was one for me that was just a must read. And I think it's the right time in my career and right time in markets too, which helps. Yeah. We might shift uh, across to something that we're going to move towards in the rest of the conversation, which is a company or an example of a business which, in your opinion, has done a very good job of reporting in the triple bottom line. So, yep, yep. across all stakeholders, if you have an example of a company or an industry even, and what they did well and what other companies could learn from them, I think that would be fascinating. Sure. So, the company I have in mind is Brambles. Oh, yeah. Um, and the CEO has been there a few years now. The, the reason why I would nominate Brambles is if, if you think about profitability, starting with profitability, mm-hmm. they, have, they have actually delivered very good returns over a long period of time. Yes, they've had some fluctuations, but they've built a reputation for having a very strong focus on things like return on capital, uh, they deploy capital well, and so on. But clearly, the planet is really important in this. And... What Brambles are today is they, they, they supply pallets through pallet pools um, and they supply them 
uh, globally um, through the Chep Palette brand. They aim to have those Chep Palettes been fully reusable. Uh, they have a repair mechanism which involves a lot of people. Uh, the timber that they use is totally regenerative timber, so it's not virgin forest timber. Uh, they pride themselves in lowering the cost of their of their clients. So the, 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 for their clients, clearly, by using these pallets, they're transporting their goods, uh, means at a lower cost per unit. And they take great pride in talking about the circular economy, which you could apply to almost any company um, when you think about it. Because circular economy simply means that you're using less and less of original material and you're using more and more recycled material. Uh, you've got a client proposition which lowers their cost of doing business. You're saving the planet because you're not cutting down virgin timber in Bramble's case. Uh, mm. You're using recycled timber. You're employing lots of people, giving them skills, giving them purpose, and Bramble's do have that very strong focus on that their people feel empowered about the purpose of the business. Um, overall, I think Bramble's, it sets the scene for, for a lot of companies today. Uh, mm. That is that everything that we use is finite, and I think we forget that. And so if you take a finite resource, if you can continue to use the same resource time over time over time, you are going to, by definition, use less of that. You're, by definition, going to lower your carbon emissions. You're going to, by definition, include improve what we call sustainability and the people that work with you and for you are going to see a common purpose and your clients are going to get an economic benefit, a social benefit and an environmental benefit. That, that I think, is why I think Brambles is a standout. I, so I asked a, a really prominent growth-focused investor about three or four years ago, what is the number one company in Australia he would love to own, but the valuation has never been right. Mm -hmm. And he, and this is a guy who will invested almost purely in technology companies, in enterprise resource software. And he said Brambles. <laughs> and I went back and looked at it recently. I think I could be mistaken of the exact ranking, but I feel like they were in the top 20, uh, ranked in the top 20 globally for their basically, like you said, reduce, reuse, recycle mm. uh, in terms of the sustainability of the business, which is incredible. And also when you consider the history and how long Brambles has been around. Exactly. It's it's an unbelievable oh, it's, business. It is an unbelievable business. And uh, and to think it's just wooden pallets. Oh, exactly. But it's exactly right. It's wooden pallets, but they, they're, they're proven, they're sturdy, they're reusable and so on and so forth. They're highly versatile. Uh, and if you think about the six and a half billion people on this planet, and will be nine billion probably by the time I die, mm. their demand for that type of pallet and that type of use of pallet is just going to go up exponentially. So if that particular fund manager is referring to the fact that he thinks they're expensive in terms of how they, how they are ranked in the market, no argument. But when you have a company with that type of sustainability, those type of returns, that actually, in my opinion, is going to lead to a higher premium for that company and, and mm. other companies like it are going to trade at a higher premium. Or way, another way of putting it, um, an institutional investor or a retail investor is going to pay more for that company and in turn pay less for a company that doesn't care, mm. that cuts down virgin timber or, 
or just only has a single use for a product or, or, or a palette or whatever, um, you're going to see the, the market will start to discern between companies that actually do a lot more good in the future um, and are on that what we call sustainable pathway, which I know can be easily said, but the market is going to actually pay more for that. And, mm. and, and that's because I think the consumer now cares. It's not just people like us that invest. It's not people that just wear ESG hats. It's not just the regulator. It's actually the consumer really cares about this. Mm. I'd like to switch gears just to you now. Sure. Um, obviously, now people know your name. A lot of people invest with you. But obviously, we all started from somewhere. I went back and looked at you know, where you'd been prior to Martin Curry. I think you spent a bit of time at Deutsche, I think 16 yep. years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. Was that was that your first gig out of uni or where did this come from? Oh, no. No, it didn't. Um, well, maybe I... So I grew up on a farm. Right. Um, so maybe we go right back. Um, in Western Victoria, a place called Balmoral, which is oh, yeah. uh, the other side of the Grampians, yep. halfway Beautiful. between Hamilton and Horsham. Anyway, so I grew up on a farm and, and I grew up, uh, and my parents are still alive, believe it or not, but I, I grew up and, and we planted thousands and thousands and thousands of indigenous trees on this farm, right? We, we, we ran a lot of sheep, we produced a lot of wool, but my father had this very strong focus on you've got to you've got you got to put back mm. uh, what you take out. Or the way he put it is, we're only tenants of the land. We don't own the land, and we must restore the land, but in turn make enough to to live on, right? And and so that that had a very indelible impression, or left a very indelible impression on me in terms of how important the environment is. You know, in terms of whatever you do. Um, then I was sent away to school because we're isolated. So I, I was sent away to school and I, I went went to boarding school and then I went to Melbourne Uni. Okay. Um, and it was funny because when I did a Bachelor of Commerce, um, I tried to get immediately into stockbroking and was knocked back by, I don't know, seven or eight brokers. And hmm. eventually the National Mutual Life Association took me on as a graduate and they rotated me across each asset class. So yeah, I went into property, I went into international equities, I went into fixed interest, um, I was in domestic equities, and and I learned about overnight money and cash rates and so on and so forth. This is 1985, and <laughs> that that was the best training, those two and a half years at National Mutual, the best training I've ever had in my nearly 40 years in the industry, hmm. um, way better than the BCom at Melbourne Uni, although I had a lot of fun doing that. So I was very fortunate that the brokers knocked me back and I went into National Mutual and then I went into broking uh, with a company called McCorn Dyson, which then became ANZ Securities and then Deutsche. And the other, I mean, just to maybe elaborate on your question and maybe you're about to ask this anyways, is um, one thing I learned uh, when, I work, when I worked in broking and, and I was sent to New York City for two and a half years. And oh, nice. I was like late 20s. And like a kid from the bush. And <laughs> so going to New York was just like going to some different planet. Um, but but that was that was truly a, a remarkable experience for me. One in terms of some of the fund managers I broke to. And the second thing that struck me, and apologies if this is, a, is a, if this is another question you're going to ask, but how they measured fund managers. This is like 89, 90, right? Mm. 90, 90, they measured fund managers not on their one year, not on their three year, but on their 10-year performance. Huh. So at the back of the Wall Street Journal, you'd get, you know, you get pictures of Peter Lynch, who was running uh, the Fidelity Magellan uh, Fund. Magellan Fund, thank you. You'd have Steve Silverman, who was with Maryland Asset Management, 
and so on. So on. you'd have people from capital, but they were they were measured on their ten year numbers. And so at at, at, at my late twenties, I, I suddenly I thought, well, that makes sense because if you're going to invest and you you know you should be investing a bit like you know the Buffett documentary would t- tell your listeners if they watch it, you need to invest for the long term because your investment horizon is to some degree a bit like your your life horizon, and and so that. Sorry to, to to go on, but but that was that was fascinating. I mean, all of all of those experiences mm. that I've just mentioned have really shaped the person I am and and why I care about things like sustainability and ESG. To be honest, mm. so why do you think the the graduate rotation was so profound? Oh yeah, Nestor Mitchell. The reason is because if you don't understand the interplay between the bond market and in equities, we talk about the risk. You know the risk-free rate. Yeah. If you don't understand bonds, it's very hard to understand what is risk-free rate, right? And then property is something else again, uh, because property. You know, people start talking about cap rates, and they talk about rental yields, and they start talking about um, rental vacancies and under, under or over renting and this sort of thing. Property is almost like a unique species, right? Particularly when you're young and you're going mm-hmm. into investment markets. So, having exposure to property was great. And then international, of course, made me realise that actually the Australian market, where at that time forty percent was a resource companies, right? It's most unusual. Like you know, the US mm. market is the opposite, the UK market's the opposite, the German market's the opposite, right? So you suddenly got to you realise, hang on, there's a whole lot of industrial companies, you know, the Buffett companies that most investors invest in. It's just that Australia is this sort of different market and it, and it was far more resourcey than it is now but still even resources today is still roughly you know a quarter of the market or something so that that was so I just thought national mutual uh, and the people that I worked with there and they they all counseled me um, my boss used to my boss a guy called Peter van Weingarten. I wonder if he if he's still uh, listening if he's listening to this but but Peter was running fixed interest for national mutual and so Peter would take me into his office and we'd sit for hours talking about philosophy. <laughs> like I was very, very fortunate as a very young person to have uh, that experience and, and people like Peter to, to counsel me. And, it, and it's, you know, it's with me in my, in my older age now. How do you think, here's a hard question potentially, is how do you think your investing philosophy would have changed or be different today if you went straight into stockbroking? <laughs> Great question. I think I'd be one much more short term. Mm-hmm. I think two, I'd be, you know, looking at daily market moves, which quite frankly are, are not that relevant, but mm. we think they are. And three, I think I'd lack balance. Uh, and balance meaning all the, those interrelationships from those asset, asset classes, um, and lacking balance because if you can't think long term about an investment strategy, it is really difficult to implement it. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I often find that people who have trained in bond markets and debt markets, they approach, they really think about asymmetry. They think, well, what's my downside from here? And that one of the, in the book Value Investing, where they profile, and even in actually even in the Outsiders by Will Thorndike, they talk about this when they profile unconventional CEOs. The the common thread among CEOs and professional investors is that the first port of call is risk. So what's my downside? And then we can focus on the upside, which would be mm-hmm. equity markets, you say. Mm-hmm. So I think that that experience and the, the another th- 
thing that is often said is that the first job out of university is the most profound on the way you view the world. So true. Yeah. I, I, f- I totally relate to that. As, as I've probably described, it's 100%. And mm. you're so fortunate if you have someone like, in my case, you know, the guy called you know, Peter Van Weingarten, right? If you're so fortunate if you have someone like that who, who will mentor you almost like a parent would mentor mm. their own child. Because you're so young when you come out of uni. You think you're old, but you're just so young and inexperienced and naive. So mentoring is so important. And I would say that to anyone listening to this podcast, if you've got younger people uh, in your in your realm yeah. <laughs> of influence, the mentoring thing is, is just awesome mm. if you can do it. Mm. How about um, – so, I mean, I, there's one question I want to ask, Will, and you may not have an answer for this, but how do you think – how do you think being growing up on the farm shaped the way you invest? So we talked about like responsible uh, management and caretaking of the land. I myself am a huge advocate of planting na- natives on our block. It's the number one thing I want to do for the birds, for the bees, for everything in our area. But how do you? How else do you think that that lifestyle and environment may have shaped you? Oh, it's a it's a great question. So. So, so I think there is that concept of, of your obligation to give back. So your obligation to give back for the benefits that you've received mm. by whatever career you've chosen. That's what growing up in a farm taught me because, and a lot of people relate to this, you know, you're, you've got the volunteer fire brigade, you've got the volunteer Red Cross, um, you know, you've got... If you went to church, which a lot of people did then, because <laughs> I'm 60 this year, uh, the church gave, you know, it was actively giving to the community. Um, so that obligation to give back, that social sense of, of, of justice, perhaps, um, was, was, was probably what I got most out of growing up on a farm. Um, and then at the moment, biodiversity is a hot topic. And I convince my boss and my team at work to have a biodiversity forum, which we've just finished. And the reason I wanted to have this biodiversity forum is because having lived on a farm, I realised how important biodiversity is. You mentioned the bees on your block. I mean, we've got, they're not ours, but the beekeeper's got 70 beehives on our farm because hmm. I, I live on another farm now, <laughs> not the farm I grew up on, just near Geelong. But but like that pollination, which people think pollination's a bit of a... A sort of a hackneyed word. It's not. It's it's so valid. It's so valid to the wheat beaks that you might have in the morning mm. uh, or anything that you eat. So so biodiversity has also come with me from from growing up on a farm, and I've tried to to get that actually in in our investment process. Um, it's it's a really important aspect. So so yeah, I hope hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. That's actually a good segue into talking about your investment philosophy and process. Then is at Martin Curry. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you've been a big driver of incorporating what I would maybe phrase, and you can push back on this terminology, but maybe what I would phrase is responsible investing. Um, you've been a, a driver of that. And maybe you can talk to, you, you mentioned why it's important there, but maybe how you went about instilling that in the process and why it was the right fit. Sure. And I would be far too... Uh, I'd be very silly to say that it was me because uh, I work in an investment team of 21 people. Mm. And in all honesty, uh, led by my boss, Reese Bertles, who's our yep. CEO, like 
I think we've done this together. Um, so what we, what we decided is this, that if you go back 15, 20 years ago, the concept of a responsible investor was all about governance. And it was actually about, uh, as a shareholder, you know, how, whether you'd re-elect re the board uh, and whether you had, you had confidence in the board and whether, importantly, um, at that time, you, were, you thought the board and management were going to generate a good financial return. And so the proxy voting was really it 20 years ago, in mm. my opinion. We've come an awful long way since then. So I've been with Martin Curry 10 years, but in that 10 years, we've gone from just uh, being focused on proxy 20 years ago to now looking at governance, looking at sustainability, looking at net zero, and then there's a whole lot of subtopics that we now measure, uh, things like gender diversity, things like modern slavery risk, uh, biodiversity risk, uh, carbon value at risk, uh, and so on. Cybersecurity, which is very topical at the moment. Mm. But just to explain a bit more. So, so governance, the three aspects that we think are really important, and this and this is this is these are all measurable factors that okay. we can score, because you asked about process. So we look at the quality of a board, the diversity of a board, the whether the individual directors, whether when they were CEOs, because typically they have been, what sort of total shadow return did they generate as directors and when mm. they were C when they were CEOs. We look at license to operate, which is quite an important aspect of, of analyzing a board because do they have the right policies? Have they come un, unstuck with the regulator? Are they on side with their communities that they operate and so on? And then we look at the relationship between the chair and the CEO, because that relationship is so important because board set mm. policy, CEO and exec implement. Sustainability is all about risk. So we look at the risk. Uh, then we look at the um, uh, whether the company delivers a net benefit to society. And I can illustrate that if you want. Yeah, that'd be great if you could. Yep. So net benefit means this. Every company is going to have some external um, harm to the society. Just by turning the lights on, you know, we create harm. Take a company like Amcor. So Amcor is heavily involved in packaging. Amcor is spending a lot of R&D and a lot of dollars on R&D in actually having plastic that is fully recyclable. In fact, by 2025, all their plastic, according to the CEO, will be fully recyclable. But Amcor also have 8% of their earnings or their revenue, I think, or their earnings, either or, comes from the uh, manufacturing of the foil that goes into cardboard boxes for cigarettes. Right. That's a very high returning business for them. And they haven't shut it down. They still have it. So you're going to ask me, so wait on. So you run, you're thinking, you're talking about responsible investing, but you're talking about Amcor. Yes, I am. Because the benefit of Amcor far outweighs their residual tobacco business. Why? <laughs> Plastic is destroying water and it's destroying the way we live. If we don't do something about one recycling plastic or two, finding an alternative. In particular, when you go to Woolworths or Coles, everything is wrapped in plastic. All yeah. the food that we buy is wrapped in plastic. It's that plastic which is most, which, which is some of the most harmful to our oceans. It's that plastic that Amcor, uh, and they, they'll show you, uh, are now producing in a fully recyclable form. The tobacco bit is harmful, but we feel on a net benefit basis, Amcor is doing much more good than harm, hmm. and so that that is that is quite a good example of 
of, of whether a company is doing a net positive society, I think. The other aspect, though, is pathway. So take a company like BHP. So BHP still has thermal coal, right? Mm. It's about 5% of its earnings currently. Uh, it's um, it's um, uh, MacArthur Coal from memory. It's supplying the New South Wales power gen uh, companies primarily. And yet we believe that BHP is on a pathway, a positive pathway to the future in terms of its responsible behaviour across a whole lot of factors. But let's just take carbon as, as an issue. So it's it's heavily invested in copper. It's put a takeover bid on the table for Oz Minerals. Mm. It's heavily invested in nickel. Yes, it's got met coal, but met coal is the, it's some of the highest, purest quality met coal in the world. And it's it's spending four billion US on solutions, which hopefully could actually end up uh, be, be turning into green steel. So most of its scope for emissions are exporting iron ore, uh, right, to to steel companies, um, and we believe that BHP are going to work very closely with the steel companies to see whether they can move quickly to electric arc and then eventually substitute Met Coal right as the centre. So, so BHP is a company that, yes, it's still got some residual uh, fossil fuel exposure, even though it's sold oil and gas to Woodside, but it's doing a lot of good. Uh, and it also does a lot of good on things like sexual harassment, on gender and gender balance, um, and a whole lot. And it's very good on biodiversity. Um, it, it, oh, looks, right. it looks very closely. If it's going to expand, for example, example Olympic Dam, which it might, it's looking very closely at what what are the existing animals and flora and fauna that we need to protect before we even develop a mine or expand a mine. So, so that's an example of a company that in the future we think is going to look a lot better than it does today. Whereas some uh, funds that just screen out stocks won't own uh, BHP because it's still it's still got thermal coal or it's got met coal or it exports iron ore which is hot which has got big scope for emissions. Our philosophy is we want to own companies that may well be producing some harm today but are transitioning to companies that will be actually quite positive in the future uh, and they'll come up with solutions and they're spending shareholders' capital on finding those solutions and the shareholders are backing them. Uh, so so that's that's about pathway and then net zero is about we already assume uh, in our modelling that there's an $80 carbon price today in Australia, which, of course, we all know there's not. And we actually measure the scope one, two and three emissions footprint using that $80 price. We then put an asset value in that, which which is clearly the higher the emissions, the, the lower the asset value. Mm. And then we look at what the impact is on earnings from, from an $80 carbon price. That's really important because we want to know what we call the carbon value at risk for every company we invest in. Hmm. And if Mr. Albanese and the Greens get their way, which, by the way, is a positive statement I'm about to make, and they do actually implement a formal carbon price in Australia, we're ready for it. And and then we can assess companies based on that risk. So a long-winded answer to your question, but but you can see that the integration of this, which, which is the whole team, has taken a whole decade to evolve probably more, more like 15 years to evolve. And we feel we've got to a stage now where we can actually genuinely feel, genuinely believe that what we're scoring gives us great insight into that company, not so much today, but how it's going to look in the future. So would so would it be fair to say, and that's really uh, impressive, by the way, w- would it be fair to say that the the scoring that you do across these various metrics, does that sit alongside the fundamental analysis that you're doing or is it sit, does it sit in front of it in terms of how a company scores 
determines even if it will be researched further down the track because you're applying that $80 carbon uh, price effectively. How does how do you I – mean, what I'm getting at, Will, is have there been instances where things have gone in or out because of this? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a really good question. So – so it's it's embedded in our fundamental research. Okay. It's not separate. And apologies if I made it sound like it's it's actually embedded. How is it embedded? So just just uh, very high level, we look at we look at um, financial risk. We look at ESG risk. We look at business risk. Okay. We look at moat. We look at you know whether the business is is got a wide moat or narrow moat. All of that is in is is incorporated together. We ultimately come up with a quality score in a company, which includes all of those sustainability, governance, net zero aspects I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And it also includes a whole lot of financial and it includes a whole lot of um, and and, and governance risk as well. And the quality score is the risk of a company. And so the lower the score, the better quality, the the, the higher the score, the worse quality. And that's, that's got a combination of financial and ESG and carbon value at risk measures already embedded in it. Hmm. So so it's actually and the analysts own the analysts own the governance rating there and the sustainability rating. Right. They own the net zero work. So it's all done at analyst level alongside their financial modeling. Well, when I say it's integrated with their financial modeling to the extent that the overall quality score will reflect both. And hmm. I think final final point is if if you ever come across, if your listeners ever come across an ESG investor, make sure that the investor is balancing financial returns with the ESG uh, integration that they've got in their model. I do not believe that you can buy a company just on ESG alone, nor do I think you should buy a company just on financial return alone. You must have it integrated so that that quality or that risk score encompasses both. Mm. I mean, yeah. And I, I see that a lot, right? So this is the this actually brings us to a natural part of the, which is a question which I think you've kind of answered, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I think it will illustrate the 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 idea perfectly. Which and this is the question that I sent to you in advance: is if I waved a wand and gave you 10% ownership stake in BHP or a 10% holding in a large solar panel provider, what would lead you? What would lead to a better sustainability outcome? Yeah. And it's a false choice, I know, because un- you only have limited information. But oh no, it's it's a it's it's a very good question, and for all the reasons I gave earlier, it is BHP. I'll tell you why. why first, of all, I'll tell you why it's not solar. Mm-hmm. Sol- solar is getting to a stage where it's almost a given. Why do I say that? Because you listeners will be alarmed. <laughs> <laughs> It's almost a given because we've got some of the highest per capita take-up of solar across the 25 million people that live in Australia. And I've forgotten the number of households, but clearly it's less than 25 million. Let's say it's 10 million households or something. Uh, Secondly, most of the companies that we engage with, and probably what I didn't say to that earlier question is engagement is critical to everything I've said so far. Mm. You know, we have 400 company meetings a year. So how do I know about... Uh, all of these sustainability issues, is, it's for engagement. It's not by reading their sustainability report, it's engagement. But most companies we engage with are already embracing solar in their own right. Um, and then you get companies like Fortescue, which have got their own solar farms. Um, so so I, I didn't choose solar for the reason that I, th- I think it's actually a very mature industry, but that's just taking off at a rapid rate. The mm. BH- I chose BHP because I don't think BHP is fully understood for what it's, how it's going to look in the next 10 to 15 years. 
and I won't repeat all those things to you, but but just to say that I think BHP is a better investment for me based on how much good they're going to do over the next 10 to 15 years and what they're going to deliver in terms of materials for electronic vehicles, right? What they're going to deliver in terms of lowering carbon emissions. If they help solve how we can produce steel using green, green energy or green steel, like and I know, I know um, Forrest is trying to do that at Fortescue, how good would that be, mm. right? So that's that's why I chose BHP because I, I think there's more, there's a greater level of upside, or there's there's much more delta um, with BHP than there is with buying that, that the solar farm thing. I might ask another question related to this, which is did briefly touch on before, which is what would you say to people who use uh, rules-based strategies to simply exclude com- companies? I I would caution them. Um, and, I, and before I answer this question, I need to be clear. We do manage what we call some ethical funds. They are funds that our clients have come to us and say, look, these are our values. Can you please manage an income portfolio, for example, but can you screen out all these stocks? Now, we do that for our clients because that's their wish. But going going directly to your question now, rules-based investing where you systematically screen out stocks because they might be fossil or they, they, they might have a... That they might have had a, a, a tailings dam disaster, you know, ten years ago in Brazil or whatever. I think is far too brittle, and I think it's far too unrealistic vis a vis the real world. Let me elaborate. The data that you need for rules based investing, some quite often is actually not deep data. It's shallow data. It hasn't been well researched. Without naming anyone in particular, but some of these large global ESG firms. They don't employ enough analysts to justify that the data they're giving you, and yet they have big power in the market because they're global and they have they have influence. So I would caution. So rules-based investment is going to rely increasingly on that type of data. Um, third thing is where where we pride ourselves is engagement. As I said earlier, yeah. that's so different to. Uh, data that we can get, you know, from external providers. In our opinion, it's much more deep. It's much more well thought through. It's much more accurate, and it's much more dynamic. Um, so rules rules based investing, I think, is is not realistic in the in the true sense of the word. And if if you do investing like we do, the disadvantage is you're going to need to employ you know at least ten or twelve analysts to do it well. And remember, we're just an Australian investor. So if you're a global investor doing rules-based, you're going to need a whole lot of data from external sources, and I would question the efficacy of that data from time to time. Mm, that's a fair answer. Um, my final question, Will, and by the way, if you're listening to this and you want to learn more about Will and funds, Martin Curry, et cetera, all of that will be in the show notes, so you can scroll down your podcast player and you can click on that, and you can go to the Insights tab and read more of what the team has to say. But my final question is, I think it's a very hard one because I, even though I asked this to, to a certain number of guests, I haven't formulated an answer for myself. But what's something that you believe about life, investing, or even business that few people would agree with you on? My answer is abated emissions. Now, let me elaborate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let me elaborate because when, 
when we invest, we are given information on scope one, two, and then three emissions. Mm-hmm. But what we what isn't provided is if a company invests heavily in gas and replaces coal, they're lowering emissions by 40%. Another way of putting that is they're actually abating 40% of emissions that would otherwise have been generated if that coal had continued to be exported to a Japanese utility instead of gas, mm. which is now replacing coal. So emissions abatement is when a company system, a company deliberately takes $1 of capital in coal and puts it actually into gas and lowers emissions. In my opinion, that company should be credited for, for emissions abatement. Now, at the moment... SPTI doesn't have, so Science-Based Target Initiative, just for you, for people who haven't heard of it, that's part of NAZAMI, which is Net, Net Zero Asset Management Initiative. They don't have a policy on oil and gas companies, and they certainly don't have a policy. They, have, they prohibit, um, which is probably a dangerous word to say, but they don't acknowledge abated emissions. They just don't think abated emissions should be taken into consideration when you evaluate a company. And so that's, hopefully I've, I'm answering your question um, mm. correctly. Abated emissions is critical. If, if you want companies to change the world for the good, if you want BHP to produce more copper to electrify motor vehicles, you need to give them the benefit of the fact that by producing copper instead of thermal coal, which they're closing down, they're abating emissions and they're creating uh, a solution for humanity, which is actually going to be brilliant for the planet. So I, I would strongly urge, if there's a regulator listening to this call, <laughs> That they think about uh, emissions abatement, uh, and and they and they actually allow it to be uh, formulated by companies uh, and used by companies very overtly and very transparently, because they should be rewarded for that. It it should be used as an incentive, rather than simply people trying to buy offsets all the time. And and we probably haven't got enough time, but you know offsets offsets doesn't have a lot of efficacy in my opinion. Hmm. Whereas if you're deliberately replacing high emissions with low emissions, surely that should be valued and it should be called it's what I call scope four uh, emissions abatement. Hmm. Well, if you are listening to this, um, you know where to find Will. Uh, <laughs> Martin Carrier website. Um, I think you've brought, I mean, we could talk for hours, Will. So um, just hearing, it's a pity people don't get to see you because they get to see how, I get to see how passionate you are about this, which is fantastic. It's, you know, that's really motivating to see you um, so animated and excited about, which is great. I think it needs to happen. Um, but people can find out more about what you do at Martin Curry. Uh, there is an insights tab there where there was, for example, recently a reporting season digest and these types of things. So I'll put all the links in the show notes. But really appreciate you taking the time to just come across the road here to our Flinders Land studio. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's been great. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost 
from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.